Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, this is Holy Week. Uh, Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter Sunday. There's nothing in the Bible about Holy Week. There's nothing in the Bible about Easter or Christmas or Good Friday or Monday Thursday. Uh, but the church has established these days just to help us remember, especially to celebrate and remember certain things on certain days. And so for thousands of years or hundreds of years, thousands of years, we've been uh, doing it. And it's, it's a good exercise. It's very helpful. Uh, today is what the church for uh, centuries has called Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from the Latin word mondum, which means commandment. So it's commandment Thursday. And what commandment in particular? Well, it's sort of what we call the 11th commandment. It's the commandment that Jesus gave his disciples on the night before he was betrayed. And when he said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so Maundy Thursday, the day we remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet and he loved them and he commanded them to love each other. And then tomorrow is Good Friday. What's good about it? Well, what's good about it is that uh, in the gruesome and painful uh, death of our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, uh, he provided an atonement uh, for all of our sins. And we celebrate and remember what he's done for us. Uh, if any of you uh, are from churches that, that don't uh, remember Good Friday and you'd like to come and join us, uh, we have a service of silence. You come on the campus silently and you leave the campus silently. Uh, and it's a service when we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That'll be uh, tomorrow. If uh, some of you don't have a sunrise service before you go to your own church service, uh, just come join us at um, Botanic Gardens. Uh, and uh, that's at 6.30 on Sunday morning. So it's just like Amen Bible study. Pop up and the sun will rise about that time and we'll remember what the women found when they went to the tomb uh, before dawn on Easter morn. So uh, this is the week when we celebrate. But, you know, we, when we're celebrating, uh, especially Good Friday and, and the sorrows of things that lead up to it during Holy Week, we have to ask ourselves, uh, how did we get into this mess? What, what led to all this? There's so much uh, deep pain and brokenness uh, and grief uh, that surrounds Good Friday and, and all the events of this week. And of course, it's human sin. And uh, we're having to deal with that now. The Lord Jesus, when he laid down his life on Calvary's cross, he paid for the penalty of our sin. So we know that the penalty is paid for. We know that he's taken up residence in our hearts and we're increasingly becoming more like Jesus Christ. He's giving us power to deal with our sin now. But then we still have this battle to fight out in uh, society itself, uh, to, to fight with uh, the issues that surround us in, even in our own city. And what's uh, wonderful about the book of Acts, among many other things, is that the Apostle Paul gives us an example for how to do that. Now, up until now, up through chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, as well as Peter and John and Philip and others, have been on the offense. Now we're going to see Paul move to defense. Now, if you saw the Final Four and you saw uh, Coach uh, Calipari interviewed, he was asked, uh, how did your guys do this? And he said, defense, good defense. And everybody knows in the NBA or at the top level of college uh, basketball, it, it really is fundamentally about defense more than anything else. Well, in some ways, the Christian faith is that way. We need to learn good defense. Of course, we should be on offense, but we should also learn how to give an answer for the hope that is in us, says Peter. And 
Paul who says we should be able to rightly divide the word of truth in any circumstance. So uh, learning how to defend the faith is very important. Now what we're going to have, we'll begin with chapter 21 through chapter 26, are five major defenses of the faith by the Apostle Paul. And he gives these defenses in five different venues. First of all, today we'll see that he gives a defense to the Jewish crowd. We'll see next week how he gives a defense to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And then, of course, you have the series of uh, Roman uh, rulers, Felix and Festus and uh, King uh, Herod Agrippa II, where Paul gives a defense before political leaders and military leaders. Now, in each of these cases, we're going to have a lot to learn about how we defend the faith, what is involved in being a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. A witness is someone who sees something and hears something, someone who experiences something, and we are the ones who then, as faithful witnesses, uh, defend the faith that will be under attack uh, from those who don't believe it. And uh, if you don't believe that, all you have to do is to examine the Apostle Paul's life, examine the Lord Jesus' life, and then examine the life of any godly person. You'll find that they're always under attack, and we need to be ready to answer this. Now, there are some bad ways to respond, and the church has tried all of those ways, and we're still trying them, and uh, unfortunately. And we uh, sometimes will try to use methods that were not ours uh, to use as our primary weapons. Sometimes we try military strength. The church has actually tried that route. Uh, we try political strength. We're really good at that in our own day, uh, trying to exercise our power and influence primarily through politics. Uh, we've tried uh, financial strength. Uh, none of these are going to accomplish the day. There's a spiritual strength that comes and a gospel strength that comes that is ours to use when we're defending the faith. Now, what we have today is really almost two chapters. There's a lot to work with here. Uh, We're going to read it in sections, and we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to get the basic outline and make some major points that we see here in these texts with the Apostle Paul. Well, let's begin with chapter 21. And here Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders with a tearful goodbye, with many prayers, and he's on his way to Jerusalem because, as you remember, uh, Paul is paying off a vow. He made a vow to the Lord. We believe it's a Nazarite vow. And at the end of that vow, you uh, the Nazarite vow is you don't cut your hair. At the end of that vow, you cut it, you shave it all off, and you take it off of your hair uh, as a sacrifice. I see that some of you have already done that. Uh, And uh, you offer your hair as a sacrifice, and then you also give a financial gift uh, as part of your worship. And Paul is on his way to Jerusalem uh, fulfilling a vow. He also has a gift that he's been collecting, and you'll see references to it in several of his epistles, how he is collecting financial gifts from the Gentile Christians to go and take it to the Jewish Jerusalem Christians who are being persecuted and who are known to be rather poor. It's also a wonderful way to show the unity of the church of Jesus Christ so that one race is giving to another out of great compassion and mutual affection. And Paul, you may remember in Romans, he says to them in Romans 15, please pray that my gift will be accepted. So in other words, just as the Gentiles are gracious in giving it to the Jewish Christians, pray that the Jewish Christians will be gracious in receiving it and will receive it as an act of brotherly love. 
So Paul's on his way back. He doesn't want to be deterred so that even when he sees the Ephesian elders, remember, he sees them in Miletus at the coast and he sends a messenger to tell them to come down and meet him there because he doesn't, he doesn't have the time to, to take uh, to delay his arriving probably for Pentecost uh, festival in Jerusalem. So here we pick up the story, chapter 21, verse 1. And when he had parted from them and set sail... We came, notice we, Luke is with them, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not Be persuaded. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now let's look at these 14 verses. And here we'll see that our faithful witness demands courage. Our faithful witness demands courage. We're going to have to have help. We are not by nature courageous people. We're by nature angry people. We're by nature fearful people. We're by nature vicious people. But we're not by nature courageous people. We're going to need help. And we need to call out to the Lord and and ask Him to help us be courageous. Why? Well, number one, you see in those first 11 verses, the Spirit warns us. The Spirit of God warns us. He warns us even now. Warns us through reading the Word where Jesus said, you know, if I've been persecuted, so you'll be persecuted. And where Paul says to Timothy, anyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. You're warned by the Spirit that if you come into the band of, of brothers, if you come into the train uh, following Jesus Christ, uh, you will uh, be persecuted. And you notice that this happens in verses 1 through 7 through our fellow disciples. He landed at Tyre. Think of that. Tyre and Sidon were known for their wickedness. And here he lands at Tyre. And what do you find there? You find a church. Uh, And through those brothers, uh, it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, there, if you read Stott's uh, commentary or even looked at the footnotes in your own uh, ESV study Bible, you'll see there's some discussion there. How could it be that the Spirit 
was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and Paul goes on to Jerusalem. Is Paul not obeying the Spirit? Well, no, because earlier we know that Paul was going to Jerusalem by the Spirit. So what is the meaning here? I think it's relatively simple. It was just that simply the Spirit revealed to those disciples in Tyre that trouble awaited Paul in Jerusalem. So it was through the Spirit then that they urged him not to go because they had information, they had a revelation from the Spirit that trouble awaited him. Well, if you know that trouble awaits one of your brothers who is to go downtown Memphis, you'd probably say to him, don't go downtown Memphis. You're gonna, the Spirit tells me you're going to be hurt today. And that, that, I believe that's all that's happening here. But, but he was receiving information which was correct from the fellow disciples. And then he was receiving encouragement which was incorrect from the disciples. And we also get it through our teachers. He says, while we were, verse, uh, verses 8 through 11, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So if he didn't believe just the plain old brothers, well, how about a prophet, a preacher who comes down from Judea? Now, this preacher, uh, this prophet, Agabus, was the one who had predicted famine, you remember, back in Acts 11, and, and it was correct, it was true. He turned out to be a, a, a man who was given a special revelation by God. And here Agabus comes down and in Old Testament fashion, like a prophet, he works it out in dramatic, uh, like a skit. And he takes Paul's belt and ties his hands to his feet and says, whoever owns this belt is in trouble in Jerusalem. Trouble awaits him there. Well, of course, when Agabus does that, then uh, the brothers, verse 12, uh, protect us. When we heard this, says Luke, we, and Luke is including himself and all the people there, we urged him not to go up to, up to Jerusalem. So it's going to take great courage because you're, you're informed by the Spirit that following Christ is going to get you into trouble. And furthermore, your brothers in Christ and your teachers are going to try to keep you out of trouble even the trouble that you should be in. And the reason is we love each other. We want to protect each other. And frankly, here's a very, I think, a very important nuance we have to pick up on. If your mission sends you into trouble, you have grace to face that trouble. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily given the grace to face that trouble that you've just been given because you are you were led by the Spirit to go into that trouble. I wasn't. And therefore, I'm not given the same courage to face that trouble that you're given because you're prompted by the Spirit to go. Is this making sense? And so, if I'm standing outside that mission that you're in, I'm looking at the trouble, and love just simply demands that I urge you, at least gently, not to go. Uh, let me, uh, at the risk of embarrassing him, uh, let me mention Gib Vestal, who, you know, is the... Uh, has been the founder of Memphis Athletic Ministries when he was working with Morgan Keegan. Gib Vestal talked about this need for athletics for kids in the inner city and how God had put that burden on his heart and how he wanted to jump in and do it. And my advice to him was, I'll never forget and he will never let me forget, uh, I said, Gib, why don't you do that part-time? Just work, work it on the side while you keep your job. I'm thinking, you know, 
Mimi and the kids, they need some income, you know. So I'm thinking, why don't you work this out as volunteer and ease your way into it? And as the ministry grows and you raise funds for it, then you can make the switch over from Morgan Keegan. Am I right, Gib? Giving the story correctly? And Gib, he, he won't let me forget it because what he did was he said, to heck with all that. And he just dove in. And I go, woo. He was given the courage by the Lord to take a big risk because the Lord had put a burden on his heart. And sometimes, gentlemen, uh, you will be given courage for things, but the people around you, they're thinking of the wife and the children and, and your physical health and welfare. But when God gives you something to do, you must look to him for the courage to do it. And you must not be surprised when some of your greatest resistance comes from the people you'd expect to be your greatest partners and encouragers. That's exactly what was happening to the Apostle Paul. Now look at his answer. It's a classic answer. He says, what are you doing? (laughs) It's kind of what, what you said to me, Gib. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, there may have been some who said, let the will of the Lord be done. And then there may have been some who said, let the will of the Lord be done. But they simply gave way. Why? Because Paul had been given the gift of courage. Where did that courage come from? He tells you where it comes from. A transcendent love given to him in Christ leads to an obedient love that wants to exalt the name of Jesus Christ at the risk of his own destruction. That's where the courage comes from. From having been loved so greatly by Christ, boasting now in the cross and nothing else, wanting to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if it involves suffering then bring the suffering on. I'll try to exalt him in that as well. That's where it's coming from. And we cannot be faithful witnesses until we are moved by that precious name of Jesus Christ the Lord. And when that name becomes precious to us, he will give you the courage. Because the last thing you would want to do is to disgrace or dishonor the precious name of Jesus Christ. That's where that courage will come from. The name compels us. The name of Lord Jesus as Lord compels us. Okay, in order to be a faithful witness, secondly, verses 15 through 26 demands wisdom. And I'd like for us to look at this text very carefully because we're going to see how Paul is very wise in the way that he gives witness to the Lord and in a particular way. Look look at it with me. Verse 15, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, 
telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that, that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's take a look at this now. Our faithful witness demands wisdom and two major components here. First of all, notice Paul connects with the church. If you're going to be a faithful witness, you must connect with the church. If you saw uh, yesterday, the this week's uh, new issue of Newsweek, uh, you saw uh, an article. Uh, the, actually, the, the front cover of Newsweek says, Forget the church, follow Jesus. And inside is an article by Andrew Sullivan, which is very interesting. I suggest you read it. I think he says some many good things. He shows his major complaint in the article actually is that the church has taken Jesus and the message of Jesus and twisted it to promote their own preferred political positions. And he, he uses several people as examples. Uh, people in, in the political scene right now, uh, President Obama, he quotes him when Obama cites his position on health care as, uh, you know, a fulfillment of, of the commandment to, to love your neighbors yourself. And then he quotes Rick Santorum uh, on uh, birth control, you know, as uh, part of following Jesus. And then he shows Joel Olstein encouraging all of us to be wealthy in the suburbs. And, and he's got somebody else. And he's saying everybody's taking the message of Jesus and using, just simply using it for their own pre-existing political position, which, of course, is true. So many do that, and it ends up distorting the message of Christ. So the, the title is not exactly precisely reflective of what's in the article itself. And I don't agree with everything in the article, uh, as you'd be able to tell when you read it. Uh, but, but the title suggests a lot of what people today are feeling. Forget the church and follow Jesus. Doggone it, the church can be so frustrating. And you know this. If you've been a Christian for a while, or especially if you're not, not a Christian, uh, the church it can be very frustrating. Uh, we have uh, people in the church who are uh, very needy. We have people in the church who are very manipulative. We have people in the church who are very judgmental. And I can take all those things and say, I'm the chief of them all. And, and uh, we have people in the church who are very hypocritical, who say they believe one thing and they do another thing. And, and so we're all sick and tired of hypocrisy. Of course, what we don't realize is you're the biggest hypocrite of all. <laughs> Because you thought you were not a hypocrite by being so frustrated at the hypocrites. Now you're a hypocrite because you say you're not a hypocrite when you really are a hypocrite. So now join the hypocrites. That's what the church is. Yeah, you got them. And so uh, the church can be very frustrating. You think the church was not frustrating for the Apostle Paul? Here's a man who just said, I'm willing to lay down my life. No, I want to lay down my life for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes throughout Asia Minor, um, Macedonia, Achaia, gets stoned, uh, whipped, uh, imprisoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, 
And he comes back to the church and they say, Paul, we've got this little problem. You know, some people think that you're, you're leading the, the Jewish Christians astray. And, you know, everything within you just want to say, you know, you fat rear-end people sitting here in Jerusalem, none of you get out very much. And I'm out there around the world evangelizing and you're trying to micromanage the message I've got. That would be the Wilson response. Uh, Paul's response is very different. And the reason it's very different is he loves the name of Jesus Christ and he loves what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church with all of her warts and all of her self-righteousness and all of her sin, all of her problems, all of her failures. He loves her and he died for her. And so if you're going to be following Christ, you cannot forget the church and you can't just tolerate the church. Jesus died for the church. So we must enter in and love our brothers and sisters and be willing, we must learn how to lay down our lives for the church. That's exactly what Jesus did and he's calling us to do the same. And you can see the Apostle Paul doing this. A man who's been out there now ministering in really rough waters for about a dozen years. And he comes beat up and what you would expect some, you know, a big welcome home ceremony for the missionary that's been on the field and had such a successful three tours. But here's the advice he gets. If you'll look, first of all, they're, they're saying to him um, that, uh, well, let's, let's look at B, verses 20B through 26. He, 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 we're told here to remove all unnecess- unnecessary offense. Remove all unnecessary offense. This is what they're telling him. Paul, some of the people out there are saying that when you evangelize the Jews, you tell them just to forget circumcision and to forget the law of Moses, and that's what they're saying about you. So he's greeted with that. And then they say, here's what we suggest you do. Why don't you get four men who are paying their vows, who have been under a Nazarite vow, why don't you go with them and go through the ritual cleansing, which often Jews would do anyway. If they had been in Gentile territory like Paul, they would go through very elaborate ablutions or washings to get the dust off their feet, so to speak. You know, you wipe the dust off your feet against the Gentiles. And so you get all of the, the earth from the Gentile lands off your body through washings. Paul, why don't you go through that like a good ritual Jew would do? And why don't you pay for their vows, which would be very expensive? And then everybody's going to know that uh, you are not one who is undermining Jewish traditions. And lovingly and graciously, Paul agrees completely. You see how accommodating he is? And you know from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, he says, I've become all things to all men in order that I might save some. And certainly Paul says in several places, especially in Romans chapter 9, he would be willing to be accursed for the sake of his own brethren. So these people who are not believers yet, but who might very well be among the elect, he's willing to lay down his life for them. He says to Timothy in encouraging him, he says, Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I don't know who the elect are, but I know they're out there, and I know God's got them among His own people, the Jews, of whom I happen to be one. And I'm willing to lay down my life right now for them, even though they're in the mode of hatred against the gospel, even though they're the enemies of the gospel right now. If they're the the true elect, they will one day be the friends of the gospel, and I'm willing to lay down my life for them right now. That's Paul's attitude. Become all things to all men and not let silly cultural things or traditional things keep him from getting the message across. 
He loves the church. He loves the church that's established, and he loves the church that's not yet been called in to the visible body of Christ, the church that's still hidden among the lost. He loves them too. So he removes all unnecessary offense. Now let's look thirdly at verses 27 through 36. And here we learn that our faithful witness demands suffering. So let's look for a moment at the sufferings of the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 27. And when the seven days were almost complete, the seven days, that is, of the cleansing and the sacrifices, the worship, and that would be, the we believe, the Pentecost festival, the Jews from Asia... Now, probably Ephesus, you'll see why I say that. Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came of the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. If we're going to be faithful witnesses, we must be ready for mob reactions. And now sometimes the mob may be two or three people at the coffee pot in the workplace. And you'll, you'll get a sort of mob experience right there. I've, I've had it happen, I'm sure many of you have, where this thoughtless, unfair, unkind mob just teams up on you. Uh, that should be expected. That's normal reaction to a follower of Jesus Christ who has been out there seeking to communicate the gospel and live it out. Now, first of all, notice in verse 27, we have many spiritual opponents. The whole crowd laid hands on him. Now, the reason we believe these folks were from Asia is because Trophimus is mentioned, and he was, I mean, from Ephesus. Trophimus was from Ephesus, and so it's logical, isn't it, that the people in all the crowds in Jerusalem that week, they see Paul shopping in the bazaar, and there is they recognize both him and Trophimus, a fellow Ephesian, and they see them together. Paul is a Jew. The people who see him are Jewish. And they see him with a Gentile in Jerusalem. Now, it was not illegal. It was not unethical. It was not untraditional for a Gentile to go shopping with a Jew. That was okay. But it raises suspicions. Look who Paul's hanging out with. And then you don't like it because you're, you want to be ethnically pure. You want the church to consist of Jews only. 
and therefore you're suspicious of Paul, and therefore you jump to the conclusion that Paul will also violate all of the rigors and traditions of Jewish worship by taking this same prophemus and leading him through the court of the Gentiles into the inner uh, courtyard for Jews only. They jump to this conclusion. So these spiritual opponents are always looking for the first little evidence that would lead them to the conclusion that you're doing something wrong. B, notice in verse 28 and 29, they're not always honest. Look what they say. He, he, has, uh, te- he was teaching everywhere against the people, that would be the Jewish people, against the law and against the temple. That's the criticism. Now, there, certainly we can understand why they would, they would feel that way because Paul was teaching that the church consisted of Jew and Gentile. Okay, so he's teaching against the people. He taught that the ceremonial aspects of the law had been abrogated because Jesus completely fulfilled those ceremonial aspects of the law. Okay, so I guess you could say he spoke against the ceremonial law. He didn't speak against the moral law. All the moral law of the Old Testament, Paul taught his disciples to follow. It was the ceremonial law that he said was abrogated and taught was abrogated by the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And did he teach against the temple? Well, Jesus himself said that this temple will be destroyed and I will raise it up in three days, speaking about his own body. And of course, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed some years, 13 years after this event. And the temple, we know, the apostles taught, was the people of God, not a building. So did he speak against the temple? I suppose you could say, all right, uh, it's a matter of interpretation. But here they say, and he has brought Trophimus into the city and brought him into the temple area. Now there's a flat lie. That's not a matter of interpretation. So you should not expect people who oppose the gospel to interpret things fairly, nor to tell the truth at all times. That's part of the operation of the darkness of the evil one himself. If you're being opposed by the devil, do you think he's going to play by God's rules? (laughs) Did you see uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? (laughs) You know, when this guy comes out with his his, uh, swords and he's going to fight and... and, uh, and uh, what's his name of uh, the star? Yeah, Harrison Ford says, what rules are we playing by? And the man says, rules? And Harrison pulls out a gun, goes boom, kills him. Uh, <laughs> you expect them to play by your rules? We have no rules. The rules are to win and to destroy. And those are the rules. So you should not be surprised if someone, you can't say, you're not being fair. You're not playing by the rules. Whose rules? Well, they're Christ's rules. Well, I don't believe in Christ, so I'm not going to play by his rules. Oh, I forgot. Wasn't thinking straight. Uh, now, of course, in civil society, one contribution Christians have to make, Andrew Sullivan notwithstanding, is that we, like salt and light, go into society and we look for those common rules that bring civility and build community among all religious peoples. And the Christians, above all, have the capacity to do that because behind those civil rules, we have the revealed law of God. When we're talking in society, we speak on the lower shelf. We talk about things that are common to us all, and we use natural language. But behind that natural language is a revealed reality that we have the given law of God from Mount Sinai. But when we speak in society, we speak in terms that are humanitarian. 
And the Christians are the best equipped to do that because we have the revealed law that we can then translate into natural law and into civic society. So, of course, we're seeking to bring decency to society. But don't be surprised when someone breaks out uh, and goes their own way if they're not bound by the revealed law of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not always honest. Count on it. Uh, then thirdly, look at verses 30 through 32, and you'll see that other people often unfairly react. That's called a mob. Now, it says that it makes reference there to Luke 18:25. That should be Luke 23, 18 through 25. Luke 23, 18 through 25. And why do I make a reference to that text? It's because that's what happened to Jesus. And what was that mob saying? The same thing they said here to Paul. Away with him. Away with him. And they said, crucify him. So Luke wrote both Luke's gospel and Acts, and he's showing us something really poignant here. The same reaction, the same language, the same intent is used for disciples as it was for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you follow Christ and you're following Him faithfully, you're following Him closely, you should not only not be surprised, you should expect that you will at times get the same reaction that He got. And so here you have other people uh, uh, reacting unfairly. Uh, First of all, angrily. All the city was stirred up. So everybody whose mama didn't love them, they've now got an excuse for venting that anger. And what you'll find is that... uh, in the communication of the gospel, you just tap into what I call unresolved anger. It's just floating anger. And people are with floating anger, anger that's unresolved. And a lot of us here in this room, we deal with this. We have childhood issues and we're still working them out and our poor wives and children have to deal with us. And it's important that we, we begin to deal with that floating unresolved anger because if you don't, it can get tapped into when you least expect it. Well, the whole world is plagued with it. There's anger everywhere. And the gospel, when it's distorted into a self-righteous, judgmental, go-to-hell religion, it just stirs up anger everywhere. Secondly, thoughtlessly, the people ran together. Who's thinking in that crowd? You know, you can't find anybody who's thinking. The Roman authorities who care about the peace and order of the place every once in a while come in with a few thoughtful ideas. Every once in a while, a man like Gamaliel will stand up and say, hey, uh, time out, everybody. Uh, Let's look at this from another perspective. But that's a rare reaction. The most common reaction is the mob just moves like a mob. The mob moves like a mob. Let me tell you something, brothers. If you're in Jesus Christ, you just don't move with mobs. You will not move with mobs. You insist on being a man of wisdom. And usually a man of wisdom will get run over by mobs. And you're ready to be run over if that's what it takes to be a man of wisdom. They're thoughtless. They're also violent. They seized him. They laid hands on him. They had no right to lay hands on him. And they did it. And they did it because of a lie. And they dragged him. And they sought to kill him. And they were beating him when the Roman officials got there. What right do they have to do this? None at all. And who gets arrested and punished for it? Nobody. Don't be surprised. Now, verses 33 through 36, you notice something else. We get blamed for their incivility. Who do they arrest? Paul. (laughs) The poor guy getting beat up. Now, a lot of this is, is good law enforcement. It's called protective custody. 
Let's get Paul out of here and protect him. And you notice that they had to lift him up over the crowds who were trying to hit him uh, as the Romans were carrying him along. So it's protective custody, but you don't need to put somebody in chains for protective custody. So there's an immediate assumption of guilt with the Apostle Paul. The authorities want peace. They're called, uh, they're called officers of the law, but sometimes they're officers of pragmatism. Let's just do whatever it takes to bring peace and get this thing quieted down so that we don't get in trouble. And this is what they did to the Apostle Paul. Now, on the other hand, uh, I thank God for the Roman authorities because if it weren't for them, uh, Paul would not have made it as far as he did. But still, uh, you, you cannot expect that even law enforcement uh, will always treat you fairly uh, when you're uh, seeking to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, fourthly, Roman numeral four. We're going to look at verses 21, 37, all the way through 22, 21. And here's where we get to the heart of his message. Our faithful witness demands apologetics. Apologetics comes from the word in verse 1 of chapter 22, if you'll look there with me, where he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. That's the word apologia. And from it we get apologetics. That means the defense of the faith, the Christian faith. If you're a faithful witness, it's going to demand apologetics, a defense from you. Let's look at it, beginning with verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Oh, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was, then there was a, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will 
to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I uh, imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Okay, let's look at this. And here we learn our faithful witness demands apologetics. First of all, we must submit to the authorities. Paul says to the, to the tribune, that would be like a, a lieutenant colonel. He says to the centurions, which would be like a captain in our army. He says to them, may I speak? He asks for permission. He doesn't get bossy. He doesn't get self-righteous. He doesn't get up on his high horse and say, do you understand I'm a Christian? He just says, sir, may I please speak? So he submits to the authorities. Secondly, notice then, he witnesses to the crowds. And we must witness to the crowds too. We must be very respectful of authority. When you're disrespectful of rightful authority, then what you have to say to the crowds is not going to, it's going to be discounted. When you show proper respect for God-ordained authority, now you have the credibility to speak to the crowds. And that's what Paul does. He gives an answer for the hope that is in him. He rightly divides the word of truth. He guards the good deposit that God has given him. And now he's going to guard it. Now notice what he does. First of all, uh, in those first few verses, he speaks their language. He speaks Greek to the centurion, uh, to the tribune, and he speaks Hebrew, or actually it's Aramaic. It's a, you know, in a, a sort of a, a Syrian form of Hebrew. It's an amalgamation. But he's speaking their street language. And he talks uh, to them. And notice he also says brothers and fathers. So he's not only speaking their language, he's speaking very respectfully. And we must learn to speak the language of the people around us. Secondly, we identify with them. And that's exactly what Paul does. Now, this is the second version of his conversion. We'll get the third version of his conversion when he's before Agrippa. This version has some distinctive elements to it. And most of the distinctive elements of this version have to do with everything Jewish. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, but I was born a Jew. My mama was a Jew. And he says, furthermore, we moved to Jerusalem probably when I was a kid. I was reared here. And I went to the University of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the best-known rabbi in Jerusalem in the school of Hillel. And Paul says, I was a follower of Gamaliel to the strictest limit. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he says elsewhere. My my credentials cannot be questioned. Uh, I was trained exquisitely by Gamaliel himself. And he goes on to say that I was passionately involved in the mission of persecuting these heretical Christians. They were considered heretical Jews because they were following what they considered a false Messiah. So he says, I persecuted them just like you're persecuting me today. You notice how Paul is not being self-righteous. He's saying, look, I understand completely what you're doing. I was doing the same thing you're doing. 
He was completely identifying with them and showing them also that the Christian faith is eminently Jewish. Now, if you're in Kazakhstan, you want to show that the Christian faith is Kazakh. And you want to show how the Kazakh culture is meant to be relevant to the Christian faith and the Christian faith to the Kazakh culture. The same thing with America. Wherever you go, you want to identify. Now, notice Paul's story here is eminently Jewish. And even when he talks about Ananias, he says here, only here, he was a devout Jew, well respected by the synagogue. And he also talks about when he got his vision, his vision was in the temple of all places. I got my vision from the God of Israel, in the temple of Israel. You say, I want to tear this place down? I was worshiping here when I heard from God. So everything is Jewish. He's identifying with them. And that's what we must do. Now, thirdly, notice, in verse 6 especially, you you get the idea, we just tell our story. He says, as I was on my way. So when Paul talks about his own witness, he's just telling his story. Now, gentlemen, you may say, I'm not very good at theology. I've never been to Bible college. Uh, I, I haven't even read the Bible through. Well, let me tell you something. If you know Jesus Christ, you're an expert about how you came to know him. You're an expert on your story. So get your story down so that it communicates well how you came to know Christ. That's what Paul is doing. He's just telling his story. Now, he's told his story many, many times. Everywhere he went, I'm sure he gave his testimony and told his story. So he's learned how to hone it down so that it really has the most salient points that are the most useful to the hearers, especially Jewish hearers, because he was giving his story in synagogue after synagogue. So now, after years of experience, he's standing up and once again just giving his story, but in a way that's particularly relevant for them. And then notice, fourthly, verses 7 through 9 particularly, our story must point to Jesus Christ. We don't want to just know how you became a happier person or how you became a better person, or how you now have peace. What we need to know above all things is what does that have to do with Jesus Christ, who is the source of joy and the source of peace. So be sure that in your story, you explain to us how Jesus came into your life and what Jesus did for you and how you're motivated by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did. Notice, fifthly, in verses in verse 10, that he cites his authority. He says, and I said to the Lord, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me. So you can say, and this is what I learned from the Bible. Well, this is what God taught me in His Word. You cite your authority. It's fair enough. Let them them critique your authority. But show them what your authority is. It's not just that you created a new religion or that you like the people who are teaching it or these people, you know, seem to be the kind of people you like to hang out with. No, it was from the Lord Himself. Sixthly, notice in verses 11 through 15 that we recount our commission. I'm telling you this story because basically God has said to all of His disciples that we're to make disciples of all nations, that we're to be witnesses of His by the power of the Spirit. And so I come to you in the name of Christ on His commission. At His, at His urging, I come to you. And then notice seventhly that we explain the commitment. In other words, He says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. So I committed my life to Him. And He's calling upon you to commit your life to Him as well. And then notice then, eighthly, now we get to the question about the Gentiles. So Paul has done all these things in his testimony, just in the scope of a few moments. 
And now he comes up to answer their question. You want to know what I had to do with the Gentiles? Here's the answer. After all this, I got the story about Jesus and about conversion and about how they too could follow him. Now he's going to answer their question. God told me, go to the Gentiles. The Great Commission. And that's what got them so angry. Because that violated everything about what they cherished in their racist religious ideas. And they became furious. Now lastly, let's look at verses uh, 22 through 29. And uh, we'll learn there that our faithful witness demands self-respect. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, the colonel, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. That's fair, isn't it? But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, that would be the captain, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now quickly. Enemies may see us as evil. Away with him. He is the, he's the scum of the earth. He doesn't deserve to live. Your enemies will see you as the, as, your worst enemies will see you as the essence of evil. This is what the new atheists are. The reason they're new is that now they're newly aggressive and they're saying not only do we not believe what those people believe, but they're the source of all evil in the world. So the new atheists are basically saying, Christians, as well as other religions, but primarily the Christians because these new atheists are in the West, Christians are the worst source of all evil on the face of the earth. Your enemies will see you as evil. Secondly, authorities may see you as trouble. If you you guys just wouldn't say that only people who believe in Jesus are going to heaven and that everybody else is going to hell, if you all just stop saying that, we could get rid of all these tribal wars all over the world. Basically, I heard Bill Clinton say something equivalent to that when he was here in Memphis to receive his award for peace. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an honest viewpoint, uh, but it's honestly coming from someone who doesn't believe. How could you say that we would cease to proclaim the message in order to bring civil peace in the world? Uh, ultimate peace is lost, the peace that lasts forever and ever. C, we see ourselves as God's, we see ourselves as God's image bearers. So when you're being persecuted, you defend yourself up to the point of self-respect, not up to the point of promoting yourself or certainly of promoting yourself beyond the mission. But here's the reason that applying civil rights, even to yourself, are necessary. First of all, we avoid unnecessary suffering. Paul says, I'm ready to die. But he doesn't go out and say, here, boys, put the nail right here and put the other nail right here. Hit me. He doesn't do that. We're not looking for unnecessary suffering. We're not a bunch of sadomasochists. So we avoid unnecessary suffering. For one reason, we need you in good health, if God allows, to go on to the next witnessing opportunity. Secondly, we're dignifying all of humanity. When our brothers in Christ put a sign on their chest that says, I am a man... They're basically saying, every man is a man. 
And so you are, you're restoring dignity to the entire human race when you're appealing for your own dignity, not demanding it, but appealing for it. Thirdly, you're protecting the church. Paul wanted to be sure that everybody knew, and Luke wants to be sure everybody knows, the Roman authorities consider Christianity legitimate. And Paul wanted that word out there. If he was abused, what's going to happen to James and all the other disciples? They're going to be abused too. So you're protecting the church. Third, fourthly, you're serving the state. It does Rome no good to be the persecutor of Christians. And fifthly, you're honoring God. We're God's children. And anybody who treats us as we ought to be treated ought to give us all of our civil rights. That's how you defend the faith in this first apologetic of the Apostle Paul. And we've got four juicy ones to follow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together to study your word. Enable us to go out and to represent that word, to live it out. And as you give us opportunity to witness to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.